pray. Amen. <clears throat> I was uh, a couple months ago. I, I don't know why. I was digging through a box in uh, one of the rooms and uh, looking for something. And I came across photo directories. Do you remember the things called photo directories? Well, a photo directory, uh, if you're under 30, a photo directory is uh, a piece of paper with photos on it and people's names under it. And we would do that as churches because uh, we would like to know who was in the church and if we want their phone number or see who they were, if we met somebody and couldn't remember their name or wanted to call them, we could get that information from the photo directory. <clears throat> and I was looking at one from the 1980s. Now, some of you here were in that in the 1980s. And uh, wow, things change, don't they, in a few years. And, uh, but I was walking through, and, and, and probably about 40% of the names I recognized, and, and there were people I'd either heard of or knew, and I was looking at it, and I thought that was kind of cool. And then the next one I pulled out was from the 90s. And so it was several years later, and as I was going through that, second photo directory, I was hit by the fact that only about half the people that were in the one from the 80s were in the one from the 90s. And I remember reading one time uh, some author saying that every five to seven years, a church, 50% of the people that were in the church will be gone after five to seven years. There's a, a turnover and an attrition that just takes place in a church and some of those people have moved on because they have you know got different jobs or they moved to different places or they have a different preference for church and so they've moved on and gone to other churches which you know every pastor grieves the loss of people but you know it's great if they're going to leave they're going to go to another church because that means they're still following Jesus but then there were those people that are in there and you see pictures of them of people who at one time were following Jesus but they left but not to go to another church but because they don't believe in church or Jesus anymore and they're these ones especially difficult as a pastor to see that people who have been disillusioned because of something that has happened in their church or their discouraged because of the problems they're not getting answers for or prayers that they've been praying or they're distracted by things that are happening in the world or some way disappointed with God, like Sam was telling us in her testimony. And what happens is the heart grows cold and slowly drifts away and shifts so that eventually the person says, I'm not sure this is really that important anymore. I'm not sure I even believe anymore. <clears throat> now what I discovered in reading scripture is that is not a problem unique to Springvale nor is it a problem unique to Canadian Christianity or Western Christianity in fact it's not even a problem that is unique to our century it is a problem that existed back when the church first began in fact Peter the apostle whom Jesus said on you I'm going to build the church he writes two books in the New Testament. He's, a, he's in many, but he writes two books in the New Testament, at least 
to, First and Second Peter, and in Second Peter, that's the purpose that he writes. In fact, if you go into chapter 1, verse uh, 12, he said, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them, even though you've been told them, I'm going to bring them back to you, and, and that they're firmly established in the truth that you now have. So I'm going to remind you of things you already know to make sure that you're firmly, Dave, could I have that gla my glass of water right under there? I don't know what's going on, but <clears throat> thank you very much. I'm going to tell you these things so that you're firmly reminded and firmly established in the faith that you have because some of you are in danger of losing the faith that you have and walking away from it. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a, oh, a rich welcome into the kingdom of God. Whoops, I skipped. I went back in verses. I made an error on that one. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them are firmly established in the truth you now have. This is the verse I meant to read. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent of the body. Because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. Imagine, at some point Jesus said to Peter, your time is soon up. And the last thing he wants to do is make sure that the faith of those people he has led as believers is firmly established. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. And that's where the th theme for this series comes out. Paul, Peter is going to say, I'm, I'm going to remind you of these things, and we are to remember these things so that our faith is established and firm. Now, there would be no need for Peter to remind us of these things if there were no danger that we could walk away from our faith. Stop and think about that. Peter wouldn't have to write this if it wasn't a serious issue going on in the lives of believers. I mean, I just listened to the two testimonies that Sam and Annika gave, and they talked about the disappointments that they had with God and the struggles that they had in their life that they were praying for, but there was no answer coming forth immediately. And so they had to live under the weight of those unanswered prayers and those difficulties that they were living through. And they began to wonder, is God even real? Sam mentioned one thing in her testimony, just the weight of constantly being a Christian in a world where it isn't cool to be a Christian and to identify with Christ and the onslaught and the oppression of standing for Jesus in a world that says you're the problem and you're the one, you're, uh, the one that's being oppressive and you're part of that group that is holding our world back. And to make the choice to still stand and how that can wear you down over the course of days and months and years. To eventually you wonder, is this even worth it anymore? Not to mention the own disappointments we have with people in our church or people in our family or people who are Christians in positions of authority 
and uh, how their sin and their failures then cause us to begin to wonder, well, what, why am I following this? And Peter's aware of these disappointments and these disillusionments and these distractions of the world that calls to us, and he knows that it has, a, has an effect on the faith that we're given. And so this is what he's going to do. I'm going to remind you. I'm going to remind you about what your faith is all about. And so he starts in chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. It doesn't show up in English, but it's interesting. This is something you can think about. He uses the Hebraic form of his name, but he's writing basically to Gentiles. So why would Peter use the Hebraic form of his name? Now, probably about four of you are interested in that statement. So if that didn't mean anything, you just let it go. But for some of you, you're like, yeah, Why? Now, his introduction is basically a common introduction. You'd find it similar to those in Paul, except for what he writes here. To those who through the righteousness of God our Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Two things I want to just highlight because they're going to kind of bubble out. The first thing he says is we have received a faith. And so we receive a faith because Jesus has initiated into our lives and has revealed himself to us. And so this faith that we have is not based upon what we do and what we accomplish and what we know and what we understand. It's based upon his righteousness, the fulfillment of the justice of God that happened at the cross. So our faith is not because of what we do. You don't have faith because you come to church. You don't have faith because you read the Bible. You don't have faith because you try to do your best. You don't have faith because you believe the right doctrines. You have faith because Jesus died on the cross and so then initiated to you the opportunity for you to choose whether or not you are going to believe and follow him. It's totally and entirely based upon Jesus. And I can't tell you how comforting that is because you and I will fail in our walk with him. And when we fail, our faith doesn't fail because it's not based on us, it's based on him. That's why I can keep failing. Now, I don't intentionally try to fail, but boy, it seems to happen more than I wanted to, and yet I can come back to Jesus and say, yeah, I blew it here. And he says, well, because of my death and resurrection, you're forgiven. Never was dependent on you, Ed. All that you need to do is come back to me and remind, be reminded that my, that's why we do communion. Jesus is the center of our faith. It's all based on him. And then Peter also says that he, you have received this faith that is based on the righteousness of God and it's a faith as precious as ours and so that word is is kind of interesting because it means unique but it also means equal and so it's a faith Peter uh, Peter's saying he's the apostle he, everybody knows that he's like the the big dog leader of the early church that's spreading throughout the world and he says your faith is just the same as mine I don't have a special anointing or a special faith. It's based on Jesus. And the faith that you have is the same as the faith that I have. And just as Jesus has been enough for me, so he'll be enough for you. In fact, that's what he's going to say in the next verses. Grace and peace be yours in abundance 
through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. His divine power has given us everything we need. Stop. You have everything you need to have a strong faith. You have everything you need to walk a godly life and it comes, Peter says, through our knowledge of him who has called us. You have everything you need through your knowledge of Jesus. Now, knowledge is not the, the kind of novel knowledge Peter uses here. The word he uses is not the kind of knowledge you get when you go to school. Head knowledge. It's the kind of knowledge you have when you marry somebody. It's both head and heart. There's a reason that the scripture uses this term to refer to the sexual union between a husband and a wife. Adam knew his wife, Eve. That's the term knowledge. It's a relational, intimate, both emotional, mental, physical uh, knowledge. It's to be in in tight relationships with somebody and to, to spend time with them, to know them. And that is how God imparts to you the things you need in order to become a godly person when you're in relationship with him. And this is why um, I've noticed in my life when I grow far from God, there's a couple things that ha are happening. Usually it's because I'm not consistent in seeking God in through prayer and the word. And I'm, there's probably at least one area of my life where I'm not obeying what I know I should be doing. And so as I put those things down and push them off, <clears throat> my heart grows further and further away from God. But I've also noticed in other people and myself that when I'm seeking God consistently, when I'm opening the word and seeking him in prayer and obeying what I know I should be doing, there's a vibrancy to my life and my faith. Because the power, the divine power that we need to live a godly life comes when we are drawn close to Jesus. I think that's what impressed me so much, Sam, about your testimony. Is the difference between you in high school, where it was your parents' thing, to, no, this is mine, and Jesus is enough. And I want Jesus. There's the difference. That's the knowledge of God. When our hearts long to know him, and then seek him and obey him. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature. Did you stop and listen to what Peter's saying? When you, when you have the promises of God and you incorporate them into your life through your relationship with Jesus, then you, the divine nature of God actually starts to work out of you. Now, what does that look like? 
Well, God, that's why I say we, when I draw close to God through prayer and the word, because the word, in the word are the precious promises of God. That's how I know God. That's how he speaks uh, most predominantly to me is through the word and, and the promises he gives. And so when I'm, when I'm angry at somebody because they're an enemy of mine, the word of God says, no, 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 you pray for them and be kind to them. Well, I'm, my, I don't feel like praying for people I don't like and being kind to them. That is a battle. But when I pray for them and treat them with kindness, guess what happens in my heart? I start to love them. That's the divine nature beginning to form in my spirit. Where before there was dislike, now there's love. Because I followed the promises in the word of God. I obeyed it. And then as I'm praying and as I'm seeking, finding ways to be kind, God changes my heart. The divine nature begins to take shape in my heart. <clears throat> I no doubt some of you have, are going under, uh, facing really difficult times. Maybe financially or maybe with your children. Maybe with your parents. Maybe whatever it is that's causing you stress you get up thinking about it you go to bed thinking about it and you think about it when you're sleeping that kind of thing the promise of god says when you thank him and then you cast all your burdens on him he will give you peace and so i have found that when i do that when i've got things that are weighing me down and i'm getting anxious about i begin to do what the scripture tells me okay i gotta thank god what can i thank god for in this situation in my life i begin to thank god and pray out loud thanking him and then i say talk to him about that very situation and i cast it on him and then this peace begins to, to replace the anxiety that was in me. It's the divine nature have, making room within me through the promises of God as I believe and obey them. I'm changing. When you give, when you give your money, when you, when you tithe to God, and you, you hand your money to people or organizations that are needed, you, you get a joy, which is the opposite of what you would think because things are tight and you've got other things you could spend the money on. But when you give it to people in need, you get a joy. That's the divine nature working its way out. God's working through you as you obey the promises and the word that he's given to you. Or when you forgive somebody who's done something against you, you don't become bitter, you become free of the anger and bitterness. The divine nature is beginning to work in you. And it works, the divine nature works as you believe and obey the promises of God. You become, I become different people. And that's what Peter's saying. Our faith is based upon what Jesus done has done for us, and it grows when it's centered on Jesus. But the things in our lives come sometimes distract us and get us focused on other issues other than Jesus. We get disappointed, disillusioned, and in, in all these ways, our mind gets taken off Jesus and onto things that we're struggling with and we begin to spiral. But Jesus, Peter says, 
Through these, he has given us very great and precious promise so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. God will form and shape you as you believe and obey, having escaped the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. Now, there is a lot more here than appears. It is true that as I allow the divine nature to work into me, as I believe God's word and I put it into practice, I begin to change so that my corrupt nature that is influenced by the desires, the evil desires within me, is no longer in control, but the divine nature is taking over. That is true, so I'm escaping that corruption. But there is a reference, this, this idea, I should say, comes, comes from somewhere else in the scriptures. I'm shocked at how much comes out of the book of Genesis. This is a description. Notice there is a divine nature and a corrupt nature. There are two different natures. And if you go back into the book of of Genesis, you'll remember that God creates Adam and Eve. And he creates them and he makes them in his divine image. And so he gives them a divine nature. But then Satan tempts them and they sin and corrupt the nature within them. And then God, in his judgment, curses the serpent, Satan. And part of that curse is, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So there's going to be a battle and you're going to fight with one another. But the divine offspring, the offspring that seek me, that come from Eve, will crush you. And, but you will still cause pain in their lives. This is a fight. It's a battle. There's going to be problems or, or casualties on both sides. What we forget to do... I think, at least I did, is realize that now, chapter 4, right after this, is the outworking of this battle. And Satan's attempt to stop this seed from coming who will ultimately destroy him is simple. I'll just corrupt mankind so that there is no line seeking God. And so we have Cain and Abel and Lamech in the first chapter 4 and 5 where, and what do they do? They, They become violent and killing, and, and, and corrupt nature that is given over to violence. In chapter 6, we get the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. Sexual perversion. So we have Satan corrupting the, the nature of the people that are supposed to produce this seed by both violence and sex. Now, let's stop. That, those two topics explain or describe probably like 90% of the movies, right? It's either violence or sex. And Satan uses those because they, they are such a part of us. They're so embedded in the fall and the, the perversion of good things that God has given us. And he does it to corrupt mankind so that mankind cannot produce this seed that will destroy him. But God in his faithfulness brings Jesus who then on the cross dies and he defeats Satan and he defeats death and he defeats sin. He crushes Satan, meaning Satan's 
head, meaning his authority and his power in this world. He totally crushes it and, and, and rises victorious. But there's more to the story than just the cross. Now, that's a, a, the big part of the story. But notice what Paul writes in Romans chapter 16. I, I was reading this, and it just, oh, it, it kind of blew my mind. And, and Paul's writing to the Romans and he's closing the book and he says, everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. Why does he rejoice? Because of their obedience to the word of God. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I'm like, I thought he crushed Satan under Jesus' feet. Well, he did. But the battle continues. And you, if you are a follower of Jesus, are in a battle. Your life is a battleground where Satan continues to try to corrupt you so that you become ineffective and hopefully even walk away from your faith. But the Holy Spirit works in you as you believe the promises of God and then obey them to create the divine nature and restore. And as we fulfill the obedience of Jesus Christ, as we obey him in our lives and we obey him in the mission that he gave us to share the love of Christ with others around us, We carry on what was started and accomplished at the cross. We carry it into the world and we crush the authority and the power of Satan in our lives and in our culture. The reason it's getting so hard to be a Christian is because the strongholds of the evil one have taken such root in the minds and the hearts of our culture. And both Paul and Peter along with Jesus weep for people caught in those strongholds. And the hope for the eternal well-being of people is Jesus and us living with Jesus and allowing the divine nature to begin to work out in us as we believe and obey the teachings of Jesus. So that we become, in Jesus' words, salt and light in our world. That we, we are light so people go, there's something different. Maybe that will give me hope. And in doing so, we crush Satan's hold on that person's life as they turn to Christ. This is the battle that's going on, Peter says, for your faith. This is the fight that you are in. And because we're in this battle, that's why there's casualties. Because Satan plays for keeps. And so he said, for this very reason, verse 5, Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness mutual affection, to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities 
in increasing measure. See, Peter understands we're growing in our faith. We're not perfect. We're growing. As you, as you begin to allow the, the divine power through the promises and the presence of God in your life begin to take over areas of your life and change them, as you, as you grow in your faith, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You won't wash out. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting what he is, that he's been cleansed from their past sins. The term nearsighted is interesting because it gives you the idea you can only see that which is in front of you. And that's the idea behind it. And when we forget that we were brought into a whole new kingdom through our faith in Jesus Christ, a kingdom that he is growing through this world, we get focused on the things at hand. We get distracted by the things that we hope might find we might find kind of fulfillment in life instead of looking to the ultimate end which is when we stand before Jesus and he initiates his kingdom on this world fully we forget that we tend to think that this right now is what's most important and Peter says no 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 don't fall into that trap we're part of an eternal kingdom And as you grow these types of characteristics in your life, you become more effective at advancing that kingdom in this world. Now this, this is a list, I just want to real briefly say, this list, there's other lists in the New Testament of characteristics that describe godly people. And uh, most famously, the most famous list is Paul's list in uh, Galatians 5, which is the fruit of the Spirit. Right, so, so those nine characteristics that he lists, some of them overlap with this list. I don't think this list is exhaustive, meaning, oh, well, this is what it means to be a Christian. I think Peter wrote these things because they're the things that those people needed to focus on in their growth in their faith at that time. Because he doesn't really mention faithfulness. Paul does, and I think faithfulness is pretty important. And I think the way to use these lists is to prayerfully read through. Because I tend to, you know, when you read the Bible, you just go, and you read fast through those lists. Uh, I think the way to actually read these lists is to slow down and say, God, I'm going to read these lists. Bring to my mind anything you want to work on in my life. And just slowly think on them. Maybe even take one and just say, today I'm going to think about this characteristic. And God, would you bring to my mind how I might need to change to make this more a part of my life? And nothing may come to your mind, and so you move on to the next. Or something may come, so work on it. That's how I would handle those lists. But they describe a growing and maturing faith. And he says, therefore, my brothers and sisters... Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Work at your faith. Just because our faith is based upon the work of Jesus doesn't mean we don't work on that faith. We have been entered into a covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. Just like marriage. Marriage is a covenant. 
And two parties agree that they are going to, in marriage, agree that they are going to unite with one another. And the main thrust of it is be faithful to one another. And so if you go to any counselor, they will tell you that if you want to have a successful marriage, you have to work at your marriage. And as you work at it, even though you made a commitment, hey, I told you I loved you back then, and I've been faithful, and that's all there is to it. That's not how it works. You enter a covenant, and then you do your part. Our part is to trust and believe in Jesus, his word, and obey it, and allow it to change us. And so Peter says, make every effort to do that. To confirm the calling, to confirm. You say you have faith, well, confirm it with following Jesus. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love what Rick Warren says about our faith in this world. So I I played sports a lot growing up and into my university years. Before every game, there's a warm-up. Whether it's hockey or volleyball or basketball, even pickleball has a warm-up when you go play. Yeah. But the warm-up is not the game. The warm-up is where you get ready for the real game. And Peter is saying, we're in the warm-up. The real game is the rich, eternal kingdom of the Father, which we don't even know what his plans and purposes for us when we get into that kingdom are. They're kind of vague. We just know that it's coming. Jesus is returning. He is going to establish his kingdom on this earth. He will judge all mankind, men and women, bring into light that which is hidden, and justly give us what we have reaped all during the time that we have been here. This is the warm-up to what is real and fulfilling and eternal. This is the warm-up. And so, build that faith that you've been trusted with, that Jesus accomplished at the cross and then called you, and you accept it. Now, don't just leave it sitting dormant. Now, build it. How do you build it? You grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ through the word and through prayer, your spiritual disciplines, and then through obedience to the things he has called you to do. And if you do that, Peter says, you won't stumble, which means if you don't do it, you're in danger of stumbling. And so the rest of this book is going to be Peter reminding them of the things they need to know, in his opinion, in order to have a strong faith. There are some freaky things in this book. It's going to be fun to walk through them. But it's for our strengthening in our faith. Now, if I were to take my phone, I'm not doing this, so we don't have any uh, legal issues. If I was to take my phone, I'll turn it this way so you can see I'm not doing anything. Yeah. 
and it, take a pano shot, right? So we don't have the church directory anymore. So, but if I did a pano shot and got all of you in it, and then in five years pulled the picture back out, how many of you would still be walking with the Lord? Peter says, if you do these things, you won't stumble. Doesn't mean you won't face hard things. In fact, it, you will face hard things, but you will actually grow through those. But it's your decision whether or not you're going to work at your faith. And so as we go through, Peter's going to remind us of those things we need to be working at. I would ask you as you come each Sunday, to pray. Say, God, show me what you want me to work at. I want to be close to you. Simple prayer. God answers those kinds of simple prayers with joy. Would you pray with me? Jesus, my prayer is that in the panel shot of this morning, that there would be none who will stumble and turn away from their faith. But that each person here would trust you and seek you. They would begin to... ...to believe the promises of your word. Well, I guess first would begin to read it and seek you so they know those promises. And then when those promises intersect with the realities of their life, they would trust you and obey you what you have to say. And they would be strengthened in their faith. Father, for those who are doubting and struggling in their faith, usually they're asking very good questions. Questions that can be unsettling or facing very difficult issues. Issues that unsettle them and take their focus off you. Father, you alone can resolve and bring peace to our hearts when we seek you. And so my prayer is that despite the concerns and the hurts and the doubts, that along with those, they would seek you. And they would find the power of God at work in their lives, producing fruit, producing peace, producing joy, and, and growing their love for Jesus. Father, our desire is that no one who is struggling now would be left behind. And Paul says, for those of you that are mature in your faith, be watching for, be looking out for, be praying for, be caring for those that are struggling so that we can all come together and grow up in maturity in our faith. So Lord, that's our prayer. Would you speak to us, each of us, as we come or tune in each Sunday? Would you take something from your word, challenge us or comfort us, strengthen us through it? In your name I pray.